Chapter Five of Fast in the Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fast in the Ice by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Five. A Gale. Narrow Escapes. Signs of Winter. Set Fast. During the rest of that day and the whole of that night. Did the brig remain fixed on the berg? Early next morning the ice began to move. It eased off, and the vessel slid gently down the slope on which she had been forced, and was relaunched safely into the water. The satisfaction of the crew on thus being delivered from a position of much danger was very great, but they had no sooner escaped from one peril than they were overtaken by another. A sharp breeze sprang up from the eastward and drove them out into the pack, which began to heave about in a terrible manner under the influence of the wind. Soon this increased to a gale, and the ice was driven along at great speed by a strong northerly current. While this was going on, land was discovered bearing to the northwest. Here was new danger, for although it was not a lee shore. There was still some risk of the vessel being caught among grounded icebergs, of which a few were seen. The gale increased to such a degree before night that Captain Harvey began to think of taking shelter under the lee of one of these bergs. He therefore stood toward one, but before reaching it, the vessel received one or two severe shocks from passing floes. A large berg lay within half a mile of them. They reached it in safety, and getting under its lee, lowered a boat and fixed their ice anchors. Just after they were fixed, a mass of ice, the size of a ship's longboat and many tons in weight, came suddenly up out of the sea with great violence. The top of it rising above the bulwarks, one corner of it struck the hull just behind the mainmast and nearly stove in the bottom of the brig. This lump was what Arctic voyagers term a calf, when masses of ice break off from the bergs far below the surface of the water. They rise with extreme violence, and ships run great risk of being destroyed by these calves when they anchor too near to the bergs. Had this calf struck the Hope, a fair blow, she must certainly have gone down with all on board. They were not yet freed from their troubles, however. In half an hour, the wind shifted a few points, but the stream of the loose ice did not change. The brig was therefore blown right in among the rushing masses. The three cables that held her were snapped as if they had been pieces of pack thread, and she was whirled out into the pack, where she drove helplessly, exposed to the fury of the howling storm and the dangers of the grinding ice. Captain Harvey now felt that he could do nothing to save his vessel. He believed that if God did not mercifully put forth His hand to deliver them by a miracle, he and his companions would certainly perish. In this, the captain was wrong. Nothing is impossible to the Almighty. He can always accomplish His purpose without the aid of a miracle. There did indeed seem no way of escape. For the driving masses of ice were grinding each other to powder in nearly every direction, and the brig only escaped instant destruction by being wedged between two pieces that held together from some unknown cause. 
Presently they were carried down towards a large berg that seemed to be aground, for the loose ice was passing it swiftly. This was not the case, however. An undercurrent far down in the depths of the sea was acting on this berg, and preventing it from travelling with the ice that floated with the stream at the surface. In its passing, the mass of ice that held them struck one of the projecting tongues beneath the surface, and was split in two. The brig was at once set free. As they passed, they might almost have leapt upon the berg. Captain Harvey saw and seized his opportunity. "'Stand by to heave an anchor!' he shouted. Sam Baker, being the strongest man in the ship, sprang to one of the small ice-anchors that lay on the deck with a line attached to it, and, lifting it with both hands, stood ready. The brig passed close to the end of the berg, where the lee side formed a long tail of sheltered water. She was almost thrust into this by the piece of ice from which she had just escaped. She grazed the edge of the berg as she drove past. "'Heave!' shouted the captain. Sam Baker swung the anchor round his head as if it had been a feather, and hurled it far upon the ice. For a few yards it rattled over the slippery surface, then it caught a lump, but the first strain broke it off. Just after that it fell into a crack and held on. The brig was checked, and swung round into the smooth water but they had to ease off the line, lest it should snap. At last she was brought up, and lay safely under the shelter of that berg until the storm was over. Some weeks flew by, after this, without anything occurring worthy of particular notice. During this time the Hope made good progress into the polar regions, without again suffering severely, either from ice or storm although much retarded by the thick fogs that prevail in the Arctic regions. She was indeed almost always surrounded by ice, but it was sufficiently open to allow of a free passage through it. Many whales and seals had been seen, also one or two bears, but not in circumstances in which they could be attacked without occasioning much delay. The brief summer had now passed away, and the days began to shorten as winter approached. Still, Captain Harvey hoped to get further north before being obliged to search for winter quarters. One morning, early in September, however, he found to his sorrow that pancake ice was forming on the sea. When the sea begins to freeze, it does so in small, needle-like spikes, which cross and recross each other until they form a thin ice which the motion of the waves breaks up into flat cakes about a foot or so across. These, by constantly rubbing against each other, get worn into a rounded shape. Sailors call this pancake ice. It is the first sign of coming winter. The cakes soon become joined together as the frost increases. The place where this occurred was near to those wild cliffs that rise out of the sea in the channels or straits that lie at the head of Baffin's Bay. The vessel was now beyond the farthest point of land that had been discovered at the time of which I am writing, and already one or two of the headlands had been named by Captain Harvey and marked on his chart. "'I don't like to see pancake ice so early in the season,' remarked the captain to Mr. Mansell. "'No more do I, sir,' answered the mate. "'This would be a bad place to winter in, I fear.' "'Land ahead!' 
was shouted at that moment by the lookout at the masthead. "'Keep her away two points,' said the captain to the man at the helm. "'How does it lie?' "'Right ahead, sir.' "'Any ice near it?' "'No, all clear.' The brig was kept a little more out to sea. Soon she came to more open water, and in the course of four hours was close to the land, which proved to be a low, barren island, not more than a mile across. Here the wind died away altogether, and a sharp frost set in. The pancakes became joined together, and on the following morning, when our friend Gregory came on deck, he found that the whole ocean was covered with ice. It did not indeed look very like ice, because, being so thin, it did not prevent the usual swell from rolling over the sea. A light breeze was blowing, and the brig cut her way through it for some time. But the breeze soon died away, leaving her becalmed within a quarter of a mile of the island. For some time the voyagers hoped that a thaw would take place, or that wind would break up the ice, but they were disappointed. This was the first touch of the cold hand of winter, and the last day of the hopes advance northward. Seeing this, Captain Harvey set energetically to work to cut his way into winter quarters, for it would not do to remain all winter in the exposed position in which his vessel then lay. On his right was the island, already referred to, about a quarter mile off, beyond this about five miles distant, were the high steep cliffs of the western coast of Greenland. Everywhere else lay the open sea, covered here and there with floes and bergs, and coated with new ice. The ice became so thick in the course of another night that the men could walk on it without danger. By means of saws and chisels made for the purpose, they cut a passage towards the island, and finally moored the brig in a small bay which was sheltered on all sides except the east. This, being the land side, required no protection. They named the place Refuge Harbour. Everyone was now full of activity. The voyagers had reached the spot where they knew they were destined to spend the winter, and much had to be done before they could consider themselves in a fit state to face that terrible season. Winter in the polar regions extends over eight months of the year, from September to May, but so much of ice and snow remains there all the summer that winter can scarcely be said to quit those regions at all. It is difficult to imagine what the Arctic winter is. We cannot properly understand the tremendous difficulties and sufferings that men who go to the polar seas have to fight against. Let the reader think of the following facts, and see if he does not draw his chair closer to the fire, and feel thankful that he has not been born an Eskimo, and is not an Arctic seaman. Winter within the Arctic Circle, as I have said, is fully eight months long. During that time the land is covered with snow many feet deep, and the sea with ice of all degrees of thickness, from vast fields of ten or fifteen feet thick, to bergs the size of islands and mountains, all frozen into one solid mass. There is no sunlight there, night or day, for three out of these eight winter months, and there is not much during the remaining five. In summer there is perpetual sunlight, all night as well as all day, for about two months, 
For many weeks the sun never descends below the horizon. It is seen every day and every night, sweeping a complete circle in the bright blue sky. Having been so free of his light in summer, the sun seems to think he has a right to absent himself in winter, for the three months of darkness that I have spoken of are not months of partial, but of total darkness, as far, at least, as the sun is concerned. The moon and stars and the northern lights do indeed give their light when the fogs and clouds will allow them, but no one will say that these make up for the absence of the sun. Then the frost is so intense that everything freezes solid except pure spirits of wine. Unless you have studied the thermometer, you cannot understand the intensity of this frost. But for the sake of those who do know something about extreme cold, I give here a few facts that were noted down during the winter that my story tells of. On the 10th of September, these ice-bound voyagers had 18 degrees of frost, and the darkness had advanced on them so rapidly that it was dark about ten at night. By the 1st of October, the ice round the brig was a foot and a half thick. Up to this time they had shot white hares on the island, and the hunting parties that crossed the ice to the mainland shot deer and musk oxen, and caught white foxes in traps. Gulls and other birds, too, had continued to fly around them, but most of these went away to seek warmer regions further south. Walrus and seals did not leave so soon. They remained as long as there was any open water out at sea. The last birds that left them, and the first that returned in spring, were the snowbirds, little creatures about the size of a sparrow, almost white, with a few brown feathers here and there. The last of these fled from the darkening winter on the 7th of November, and did not return until the first of the following May. When they left it was dark almost all day. The thermometer could scarcely be read at noon, and the stars were visible during the day. From this time forward thick darkness set in, and the cold became intense. The thermometer fell below zero, and after that they never saw it above that point for months together. Twenty degrees, thirty degrees, and forty degrees below were common temperatures. The ice around them was ten feet thick. On the 1st of December, noon was so dark that they could not see fifty yards ahead, and on the 15th the fingers could not be counted a foot from the eyes. The thermometer stood at forty degrees below zero. The darkness could not now become greater, but the cold still continued to grow more intense. It almost doubled in severity. In January it fell to sixty-seven degrees below zero. So great was this cold that the men felt impelled to breathe gradually. The breath issued from their mouths in white clouds of steam, and instantly settled on their beards and whiskers in hoar-frost. In the cabin of the Hope they had the utmost difficulty in keeping themselves moderately warm at this time. Things had now reached their worst, and by slow degrees matters began to mend. On the 22nd of January, the first faint sign of returning day appeared. Just a blue glimmer on the horizon. By the middle of February, the light tipped the tops of the mountains on shore, and the highest peaks of the icebergs on the sea, and on the 1st of March it bathed the deck of the Hope. 
Then the long-imprisoned crew began to feel that spring was really coming. But there was little heat in the sun's rays at first, and it was not till the month of May that the ice out at sea broke up, and summer could be said to have begun. During all this long winter, during all these wonderful changes, our Arctic voyagers had a hard fight in order to keep themselves alive. Their life was a constant struggle. They had to fight the bears and the walrus, to resist the cold and the darkness, to guard against treachery from the natives, and to suffer pains, sicknesses, and trials, such as seldom fall to the lot of men in ordinary climates. How they did and suffered all this I shall try to show you in the following pages. In attempting this, I shall make occasional extracts from the journal of our friend Tom Gregory, for Tom kept his journal regularly, and was careful to note down only what he heard and saw. End of chapter 5